I, I, I like quotes, so uh, there are quite a few quote, quotes that, that, that inspire me. One of them is one that I think inspires many people around the world, which is Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a, a small group of people can change the world. In fact, small groups of people have always changed the world. So that, that's inspiring to me. Another is Albert Camus. In the midst of winter, I found within me the summer. So reminding me that in hardship, we, we, we can grow and, and learn from it. And then I have uh, another quote that really inspired me is one by David Schnarch. David Schnarch is uh, uh, a relationship uh, psychologist and he talks about in, within relationships, the key is to know and to be known. To know and to be known. And it's by getting to know your partner and by you opening up and being known by your partner. That's how you form, that's how you create Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Girl Show. The mission of the show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices, psychology, mental health and spirituality. My job on the show is to invite world-class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life. Today's guest is Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal Ben-Shahar is an author and lecturer. He taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. Today, Tal consults and lectures around the world to executives in multinational corporations, the general public and at-risk populations. The topics he lectures on include leadership, happiness, education, innovation, ethics, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, and mindfulness. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages and have appeared on bestsellers lists around the world. Thal is a serial entrepreneur and is a co-founder and chief learning officer of Happiness Studies, Academy, Potential Life, and Happier TV. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Thal Ben-Shahar. And here is Thal Ben-Shahar. Tal Ben Shahar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. My pleasure. I would like to start off with something. You were studying computer science in Harvard, and then you moved to studying BA in philosophy and psychology. Why did you drop out of computer science? Well, I, I, I was in my second year at Harvard. I was doing well. Uh, academically, I was doing well in sports. Uh, my social life was okay. And yet I was very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because looking at my life from the outside, you know, things were going well. But from the inside, they weren't. And uh, I realized that it wasn't about the external, but rather the internal. So I decided to study the internal and moved from uh, computer science to philosophy and psychology in order to answer two questions. One, why aren't I happy? And two, how can I become happier? <laughs> why weren't you happy at the time? Well, so, so there were various reasons. You know, one of the reasons is because I had a, a, a false model of, of happiness or rather of what it takes to be happy. See, I believe that the path to happiness was through success. 
So if I became a good student, you know, got into a good school or a good job, then accomplished things in, in, in sports, then I'd be happy. And it, it, that's not the case. I mean, today, I know also there's a lot of research about that showing that success doesn't lead to happiness. The thing, though, is that the relationship works the other way around. It's happiness that leads to success. In other words, if you increase your levels of well-being, you become more successful, you become more creative, more productive, more engaged, uh, more energetic, healthier. Um, so the model that, te that, uh, that tells us, and you know, we, we, we inherit that model from whether it's parents or teachers or society at large, the model that tells us that success leads to happiness is simply false. And that, and that, that was the model that I, that I worked according to. That's what I pursued. I come from India and uh, I was grown up in that culture that if you make a lot of money, if you're successful, then you will be happy. Why is it that in our cultures, in, in most of the cultures, we are conditioned that you got to be successful, you got to be, you got to have a lot of money to make, to be successful in life. Why is it that? I think a lot of it has to do with our evolution. In other words, where we came from. Because, you know, in the past, we needed to uh, accumulate uh, wealth. We needed to accumulate food uh, in order to survive. And today, while there are certainly many people around the world who are still struggling for survival, you know, those people who are, who are wealthy, they're not struggling, uh, at least not financially. And yet they have the same mindset. And the mindset is that you accumulate more in order to be happy. And uh, it doesn't happen that way. If we keep accumulating, we are not bound to be happy. Do you know anybody in your life who has a lot of money and still be happy and fulfilled? Uh, sure, there's actually no connection between um, money and happiness, meaning there are people who have a lot of money who are happy and there are people who have very little money and are happy. The thing about money is that it matters, but only, only until it fulfills people's basic needs. Beyond people's basic needs, money actually doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make a difference or hardly any difference. Before we get into the details, could you give us some background to our listeners who may not be aware of your work? Uh, so my, my work uh, revolves uh, around happiness. And I'll share with you a story of how I got into the field of happiness studies because for, for, for 20 years or so, I was involved just in uh, positive psychology, which is the psychology of happiness. But over the past uh, five years, I've delved more broadly into the field of happiness. So I was, I was on a flight, a transatlantic flight, and uh, a question suddenly came to mind. And the question was, how is it that there is a field of study for uh, psychology, which had been my field, and there is a field of study for computer science and history and uh, biology and geography and medicine and you name it, and there is no field of study for happiness. Yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers had to say about happiness? Philosophers from the East and West, what about what theologians had to say about happiness and neuroscientists and, e and economists and, and, and what about what movies and, and literature has to say about happiness. And I resolved at that, at that point to help create a field that brings together 
what psychologists and philosophers and theologians and economists and neuroscientists all have to say about the good life. And it's a field, an interdisciplinary field of study. So for the past five years, that's what I've been doing. I created the Happiness Studies Academy, where we offer certificate programs in happiness studies. We'll soon be offering degree courses in happiness studies. And again, it's about looking at well-being from different or through different disciplinary perspectives. What is this certificate program about in your Happiness Studies Academy? So first and foremost, the purpose of the certificate program is to help people become happier and to help them help others become happier. So it's an intensely practical certificate. Um, the foundation of the certificate is, uh, is the research in psychology. It's, uh, the foundation is deep scholarship. The ideas, whether it's ideas of uh, Aristotle, Lao Tzu, the Buddha, Shakespeare or, or Einstein, really uh, looking at what the what very smart people who thought about the good life, what they have to say, what advice they have to give. And we, we put everything through the test of, uh, of course, experience as well as science. So science is about research. Experience is about research. So it's through these two. And speaking of Lao Tzu and Eastern philosophy, Dalai Lama, they all talk about that there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way and happiness lies inside of us. There is no outside of or we can't find happiness in the external things. Then why do you think people are finding happiness in the external reality? Well, you know, I, I don't fully subscribe to the notion that it's all about the inside. You know, the, the external still matters and it, it matters a great deal. You know, reality comprises both the, the subject, meaning me, the, the person who perceived, and the object, the thing that is perceived. It's very difficult. Maybe it's possible, but it's very, it's very difficult to uh, experience happiness when, when you're also experiencing dire poverty, when your external reality is such that you don't have your basic needs met. It's very difficult to experience uh, happiness when you're living uh, under an oppressive regime. You know, maybe there are a few people who can uh, remain oblivious to, to external circumstances, who can rise above uh, harsh external circumstances, but, but, but there are few and far between. For, uh, for most people, the internal and the external matters. How much of internal and how much of external would matter in your research and studies? You know, there is research that looks at it, but the research is uh, looks at averages, not at individuals. Let, let me explain. Please. So there's research showing that uh, our happiness levels uh, comprise three elements. One element is our genes. Uh, what we were born with are our very early experiences, ones that we don't have any control over. Uh, the second element our, our external circumstances, where we live, how much money we have, or how much material wealth we, we own. And the third element are the choices that we make. Now, the average is that about 50% of our happiness levels, again, on average, depend on genes and very early experiences. On average, 
external circumstances only account for 10% of our happiness levels. And then our choices account for about 40%, the remaining 40%. Now, why am I saying averages? And why am I emphasizing that these are averages? Because let's take external circumstances. On average, only 10%, that's not a lot. However, you can be sure that a person living in dire poverty, the external circumstances matter a lot more than 10%. Or a person who is oppressed constantly, you can be sure that external circumstances affect their happiness levels by more than 10%. Similarly for genes, you know, there are extreme cases, uh, both positive and negative, where genes affect uh, a person's happiness much more than uh, 50% or much less than 50%. Um, and then there are the choices, the choices that we make on average, it's 40%. But a person who is mindful, who is aware of the fact that they have choices, that at every moment in their lives, they can make a choice, then that 40% goes up. So to say that very little is determined by, by external circumstances, yeah, that, that is true on average, but it's not very helpful for a person who lives... Uh, in uh, under harsh external conditions. In your case studies, you found that Latin America, Israel, and Australia, some of those countries are known to be happy countries. For instance, India, USA, they are huge countries and still people are not happy. Why do you think people are not happy in countries like India and US? <laughs> so, so the happiest countries in the world are countries like, as you mentioned, Israel, Latin America, this, um, some of the Scandinavian countries. And the reason why these are the happiest countries in the world is because there is, uh, um, well, two reasons. The first reason is that there is real emphasis on relationships. So relationships in these countries is a priority. In uh, the United States, for example, uh, the priority is realizing the American dream. <laughs> In the American dream, you know, their uh, you know, relationships are not really a, a part of it or certainly not a significant part of it. So, and therefore, the United States is not among the happiest, uh, well, far from it. In fact, a country like India, I think part of the reason is because there is uh, a lot of poverty there. And I know that you know some people try to romanticize uh, poverty. Uh, and yes, there are people who are poor and are very happy, whether it's in India or Africa or the United States. However, in, in, in general, for most people, dire poverty um, significantly uh, reduces happiness. We talk about being in a gratitude state and finding things that we are grateful for. I would like to ask you if somebody is not able to meet their basic needs, they are living below poverty line or they don't have food to fill their stomach. Do they need to be grateful for, for anything? Look, I mean, we don't need to be grateful for anything, but it is helpful to be to be grateful so you know you you find many examples of people who seemingly have it all and are miserable and then people who have very little and 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 generally and usually celebrate life so um, learning to be grateful to appreciate is is a very important pillar of happiness because you know as as we talked about before happiness is not just about the external it, a lot of it and potentially most of it is about the internal. 
practicing gratitude is it going to work for every individual or there is any exception to the rule there are very few things that will work for all individuals gratitude will certainly not work for everyone in fact uh, sonia lubomirsky who is one of the leading researchers in the world uh, is in the field of positive psychology has done research on gratitude showing uh, its powerful impact on people's well-being and yet she doesn't connect to the exercise she said she she's tried it a number of times and it doesn't doesn't work for her she doesn't 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 feel authentic when she does it so so the answer is it works for some it doesn't for others the things that are universal that do work for others are things like um finding a sense of meaning in life now that is that that is universal where people find that sense of meaning that is of course particular you know i may find it in uh, in in writing in uh, in teaching family um, someone else may find it in creating a business and making a lot of money other people find it uh, primarily in their community or 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 in going out and protesting so different people find meaning <laughs> in different things and that is absolutely uh, legitimate and fine however while that is unique to people what is not um unique what is universal is the need for meaning same with relationships you know relationships that's a universal need you know? no, no no person uh, is an island unto themselves you know we all need connections however there are introverts and extroverts and extroverts they want many connections introverts want few some people uh, get their uh, social fix from their family other people get it mostly from friends some people get it at work so there are both universal aspects to happiness as well as uh, a particular individual aspects to it and we need to be aware of both do you consider yourself as introvert or extrovert I'm, I'm very clearly an, an introvert. And, um, <laughs> that that is good to know. <laughs> and and yet and yet, so, you know, when when I teach, I act like an extrovert. And you know, there are uh, just like there are extroverts who, in certain situations, uh, be it you know when they study for uh, for an exam or when they are at a funeral, you know, they would act like uh, introverts. So we have the capacity to act as. one or the other however our we we also have an innate predisposition which is uh, which is biological toward usually one or the other is it possible to feel happy or to be in a state of happy mind all the time or is it a combination of being depressed and happy simultaneously because the reason i'm asking is there are days when i get depressed but overall i'm i'm happy i'm super happy <laughs> yeah there 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 aren't uh, people who are uh, you know happy all the time if by happy we mean um positive uh, emotions or pleasurable emotions uh, all of us experience sadness at times and anxiety at times and uh, and, uh, and and frustration and anger and envy these are natural human emotions and uh, paradoxically it's when we accept the full range of human emotions that uh, we are more likely to be happy in fact the first step 
as, as I see it, towards uh, happiness is allowing in unhappiness. So giving ourselves the permission to experience uh, the full range of human emotions uh, is critical, is, is central to a, to a happy or happier life. What are some of the practices you would like to recommend to our listeners to be more happier from the level they are at right now? So if they're not exercising regularly, that is the first thing that I would urge them to, to do. Regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. And in fact, it works in the same way. So regular physical exercise releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. So exercising regularly, and regularly means at least at least uh, 30 minutes, three times a week. Uh, beyond that, uh, beyond exercising regularly, it's also moving around. So sitting down for too long, day in and day out, is unhealthy. It's unhealthy for mind. It's unhealthy for body. In addition, uh, meditation or some form of uh, mindfulness practice. You know, I'm a, a yoga instructor. Uh, yoga contributed to my life uh, probably more than any other intervention that I've, that I've experienced. And whatever form of uh, mindfulness practice uh, works for you. you know, for me, it's uh, yoga and, and listening to, to music. And, you know, for other people, it's prayer and uh, and, uh, and mantra meditation. It doesn't matter. The key is to experiment and find what works best for you. And by the way, what works best for you today may not be what works best for you five years from now. And you talk so about guided meditation to be happy in your certificate programs. What's your personal guided meditation or mantra-based or transcendental meditation? Yes, so... I do do a a breath meditation, just focusing on the breath, going in all the way down to the belly and then out. I do a lot of mindful uh, music and uh, and I practice yoga. What is mindful music? Just, you know, there, there are various ways of listening to music. You know, one way is in the background. So you're doing something else, you're talking, you're doing, uh, you're working and there's music in the background. Then... Then there is also mindful listening when your primary focus is on the music, eyes closed, just as you are in a, in a, in, in, in a meditation, focusing on the on the on the notes, focusing on the words, focusing on whatever it is that you are listening to at this moment. There's John Kabat-Zinn. Wherever you go, there you are. That that's the essence of of mindfulness. So you can be mindful when you're listening to music. You can be mindful when you're walking, when you are uh, when you're working, or when you're in a conversation with with a person. And regardless of where we're mindful, there are uh, significant benefits to being in that state. And we can be mindful about eating. We can be mindful about eating. I I, I was recently at a at a day long retreat, meditation retreat, and the the instructor had us eat a raisin for 15 <laughs> minutes. For 15 okay. minutes? 15 minutes, one raisin. You know, it's not something I, I, I would recommend any, any, anyone on a regular basis. You know, you won't get far in life if that, that's how you eat. But, but it was a very powerful practice. 
Tiknathan, a Buddhist monk, recommends that mind yes, meditating. Yes, and Tiknathan also recommends uh, you know walking meditation and uh, meditate and 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 mindful listening. The, the you see that there can be formal and informal meditation. You know, formal meditation is sitting down or do it and and focusing on the breath going in and out or doing a yoga practice or a, or a qigong practice. That's formal meditation, and there is informal meditation which is about being uh, present wherever you are, whatever you do. You know, it's a little bit like formal and informal exercise. You know, formal exercise is going to the gym or going out for a run uh, or a swim. Informal exercise is um, going about our day-to-day and getting exercise through that. So, you know, climbing up the stairs in our home or going walking to the store and, and back. So these are informal ways of, of exercising, and both are effective, just like formal and informal meditation. Both are effective. Got it. I would like to ask you something very funny. How would you explain happiness to a small kid? I wouldn't explain happiness. <laughs> I, I I don't think they need to to start analyzing uh, happiness. I mean, what 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 kids need more than anything is a well, role models, but even more than that, they just need time. And, 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 and that is important because in, in today's world, we're, we're, we're stealing time from, from kids. We're not giving them free time. Why? Because we're filling up every moment with, with, with something, you know, something that will help them uh, make it, help them get farther, uh, help them be more successful. Because we really believe, or most people believe, that that is what will make them happy. What kids need uh, is a lot more uh, free time to just to just play around, to be bored, because it's out of boredom that you learn to be creative and to entertain yourself. Blaise Pascal, who's a French philosopher, once said that uh, all of men's misery are a result of his inability to be by himself in a room. You know, we're so obsessed with with doing that we've forgotten about being. If children don't need to understand happiness, then according to you, who needs to understand more about this? Well, you know, once, uh, you know, children grow up and they get to a stage where can, they can understand uh, abstract concepts, uh, then we can uh, certainly introduce them uh, to the idea. Before that, you know, it's about having them do things that, that make them happy. You know, action is more important than, than words at, at this stage. Um, so it's, again, it's about doing nothing or playing, being with people, uh, learning new things. All these are important sources of happiness, moving around a lot, of course. Uh, we can also teach them uh, mindfulness in, uh, in, in, in a delicate and, and, uh, and, and accepting way. But it's all about uh, them, ta- them uh, encouraging action that will lead to happiness as opposed to talking to them about happiness. Do you talk about journaling prompts? Is it still applicable in our modern life? Probably more than ever. You know, there's a lot of research on journaling and on the importance of journaling. And journaling is... Uh, it can help us overcome difficulties and hardships. It can help us express our emotions. It can help us figure out things. Uh, so we're able, you know, the world is becoming more and more complex and more and more confusing. 
and therefore journaling can help us make sense of the world. Anxiety levels are going up uh, by, the, by the minute and uh, journaling can help alleviate anxiety. So whether it's journaling about difficult experiences, whether it's uh, gratitude journaling, different forms of journaling are, are, are very helpful and very important uh, for happiness. Do you have any specific practice in your personal life? Or I should say journaling specific practice or you do a combination of these practices every day? Yes. So, you know, I, I usually free associate. Um, so I have, when I, when I do journal, I have something on my mind. I just don't go in and, 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 and see what comes up. So there's something on my mind and I sit down and I write about it, but I just write, you know, and I don't think about grammar and I don't think about um, making it sound good. You know, I just write because the, the, the journal is, is for me, for me to figure out what's, what's going on, for me to experience what I'm feeling. So that's the most common form of journaling for me. Another form that I've used over the years and once in a while to go into is um, a technique that was devised by Nathaniel Brandon. Nathaniel Brandon uh, was my mentor. He passed away a few years ago. He was considered the father of the self-esteem movement. And he devised a technique called sentence completion. And sentence completion is, a, is a, and, and, I, and I recommend um, that you, you look it up. It's a very powerful technique. And, and essentially what it is, it's starting with a sentence stem, uh, with the beginning of a sentence. And then you journal and complete that uh, sentence stem with uh, six to ten endings. And again, you write uh, as fast as you can without thinking, just let your subconscious and conscious mind go wild. Can you please? Um, Give us some instance on this. Okay, so here, here, here is an example. Uh, if I bring 5% more acceptance to my life, dot, dot, dot. So if I bring 5% more acceptance to my life, and then you complete the sentence. And then this, the, the completion could be, uh, I'd be happier. Uh, I'd make more, more mistakes. If I bring 5% uh, more acceptance uh, to my life, people will like me. If I bring 5% to my people will not like me. If I bring 5% more acceptance to my life, I will become more afraid. I will be more courageous. Whatever comes out, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to make sense. Sometimes contradictions come out. Now, after you write you know, at least six endings, then you can go and analyze it and, 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 and look at it. Before, you just let it come out. And uh, this form of journaling, uh, therapists are using it today. Coaches are using it today. People use it on themselves. And it's one of the techniques that is very simple, very accessible, and I, I do it myself and encourage my students to use as well. This practice sounds simple, but this is not simple. <laughs> no, it's, it's not simple. However, it's, it is accessible, meaning it doesn't take long to, you don't need to become good at it. You know, you can just do it and first time you're already on top of things, meaning uh, if you're open enough with yourself, you gain benefits uh, right off the bat. Uh, and you can do it for anything you want to work on to bring 5% more uh, joy to my life, dot, dot, dot. 
if act more generously towards people, dot, dot, dot. Whatever you want to work on in your life, you can use as a sentence step. This is amazing. And you, you have mentioned a lot of practices in this conversation. And I would like to ask you, whenever you feel any negative emotion in your life, do you have any favorite tool that you pick from your toolbox? Or do you talk to your friends? Or what do you do generally? Yeah, so, so first of all, I do not classify them as negative emotions. I classify them as painful emotions. You know, painful emotions are just as natural as pleasurable emotions are. When I do experience them, I do a few things. The first thing that I do is I embrace them. Now, there's a wonderful poem by Rumi, the, the Sufi poet, called The Guest House. And uh, The Guest House uh, is about inviting in any and all emotions, inviting, embracing any and all thoughts. And uh, this idea of a, of a guest house is, uh, well, today, we have a lot of research showing how important it is for, for well-being. So the first thing that I do with painful emotions is embrace them. The second thing that I do is, you know, I would write about it in my journal or talk to my wife or, or, or best friend about what I'm feeling. And the most important thing, I remember that what we do is more important than what we feel. And let me give you uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, I may experience a great deal of fear and anxiety over doing something. And yet I can go ahead and do it anyway. You see, courage is not about not having fear. Courage is about having fear and going ahead anyway. What I do matters more than what I feel. I'll give you another example. Let's say I experience envy towards a friend. Now, envy is a natural emotion. There's nothing good or bad about uh, envy, just as there is nothing good or bad about the law of gravity. It's part of nature. Um, at the same time, I can experience envy and still choose to act generously and benevolently towards my friend. And in fact, I'm more likely to act generously and benevolently towards someone if I first accept and embrace uh, envy. If I reject and suppress envy, it's more likely to control me. It's about accepting all the emotions, be it negative emotions. We usually accept all the positive emotions, but we need a lot of awareness when we are going through any painful emotion, as you say, not negative emotion. Yes, embracing the emotion and truly embracing it. You know, there is a, there's a, some talk in, in Buddhism, and today there is research around it, about two levels of suffering or two levels of pain. The first level is unavoidable. You know, we all we all experience it because because you're a human beings, so we experience uh, some of these emotions. The second level of suffering is when we do not accept the first level. So, if, for example, I would say to myself, you know, I'm feeling anxious, and I would say to myself, Todd, you're not supposed to to be anxious. You're supposed to be beyond that. Well, that will add another layer of anxiety to the initial one. Whereas if I accept and embrace uh, the anxiety that I experience, I will not experience the, the second level of anxiety. And not only that, the first level will not overstay its welcome. It will go out just as it came in, as a guest. Do you have any favorite 
teacher or it could be any spiritual teacher or anybody that you always go to it could be virtual or in person yes so i've been very fortunate to have very good teachers in my life so my my role models still today are my parents who who whom i speak to every day and whom i i, I learn for from and and admire greatly I've had teachers in school so the the person who introduced me to the field of positive psychology is professor Philip Stone who alongside Marty Seligman was one of the founders of the field I have teachers whom I've never met you know I I see Aristotle as uh, as being uh, one of my mentors Confucius is one of my mentors Lao Tzu so you know I'm so grateful that people throughout history have written uh, books have communicated their teachings to others so that uh, we today can benefit from them i love the philosophy of laozu you know tao te ching i'd like to ask you is there any quote you live your life by or any quote that comes to your mind that reminds you to be more grounded Yes, I, I I like quotes. So uh, there are quite a few quote, quotes that, that that inspire me. You know, one of them is one that I think inspires many people around the world, which is Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a, a small group of people can change the world. You know, the, in <laughs> fact, small groups of people have always changed the world. So you know that that's inspiring to me. Another is Albert Camus. In the midst of winter, I found within me the summer. so you know reminding me that in hardship we 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 can grow and and learn from it and then you know i have uh, another quote that, that that really inspires me is one by david schnarch david schnarch is a a relationship a psychologist and he talks about in, within relationships the key is to know and to be known to know and to be known and it's by getting to know your partner and by you opening up and being known by your partner that's how you form that's how you create uh, intimacy that is so profound to know and be known i love it do you feel that attachments with people attachments with things lead to unhappiness in life well it depends what we're attached to Uh, so you know of course i'm i'm, I'm familiar with the, the idea from buddhism about the importance of non attachment i don't know if that's possible you know maybe the buddha uh, reached that state maybe the dalai lama uh, has has reached that state i don't know i i certainly haven't and um, <laughs> i i don't think most people have or or will reach that state so the question is what are we attached to if we're attached to a uh, severely attached to to accolades and to prizes and 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 attached in an obsessive way to external success then then i think it's a problem it's something that we should work on but the way to work on it is not to chastise ourselves and to to bash ourselves the way to work on it is first of all to accept it to embrace it and then to ask what kind of life can i lead what action can i take because action is more important than feeling right what action can i take Uh, to lead a life that i would approve of rather than a life that would be approved by others 
is there a possibility that we attain optimum level of attachment and still be happy i'm just making it up yeah i think some attachment again is is inevitable for certainly for for most people and there can be healthy attachment you know the being attached to um to to, to you know to quality writing you know i'm attached to the quality of of my writing i don't think it's unhealthy now it doesn't mean that if i have a day where i don't write well or if i have a book that doesn't you know measure up to my standards or, or then not the end of the world but it doesn't mean i'm not attached to it i still experience uh, sadness or disappointment or frustration uh, so there are, there are degrees of attachment it's not a binary zero one and some attachment as i said is inevitable and some attachment we can also leverage uh, for good and that sadness could be a measure to improve the next time yes exactly it could be a form of of motivation uh, by the way just like uh, you know the emotion envy i don't like it but i experience it and yet i can turn envy into into hard work and 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 investment so um even the painful emotions that that we are uh, or the things that we're attached to we can uh, in the words of freud uh, sublimate or channel uh, towards positive ends got it and before we conclude our conversation i'm having two questions in my mind that i would love to ask you what are some of the things you have changed your mind about in the last few years you believed maybe 2 years ago but now you don't believe in that is there anything Yes, I think the most radical change in my thinking and it's more than 2 years but then certainly over the last 10 years has been around expectations. So this is also the way I I taught it throughout the uh, throughout the years I talked about how expectations are important to to happiness and how high expectations are important to happiness. whereas today i also see the 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 importance the 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 value of lowering expectations now not expectations necessarily in terms of success i actually don't think that matters that much so yes high expectations lead to more success it doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness but expectations about the kind of life that we can lead the amount of happiness that we can attain if my expectation was extremely high once about you know being happy all the time it's no no longer that today i think i have more realistic expectations and even though you know over the years i have become more and more of an expert in this field that doesn't mean that i can be exempt from painful emotions so lower expectations about um about my experience and this is a great distinction you mentioned that sometimes lowering expectation doesn't mean that we are incapable of doing things or because too much expectation sometimes can lead to suffering and unhappiness that, that that is correct but we need to make a a distinction between expectation in terms of outcome and expectations in terms of experience and there is expectations in terms of outcome i that, that can actually lead to higher levels of uh, of performance and 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 that's great it's not the path to happiness but you know we 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 want to 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 achieve things in or most people want to achieve things in life at the same time expectations about our experiences that needs to to change for example 
going into a relationship and expecting that we'll live happily ever after, that is actually a prescription for unhappiness. <laughs> and Love it. All relationships, even the best of them, there are ups and downs. And, uh, and it's important to have realistic rather than unrealistic expectations. I have one quote that I remind myself, and this quote is from my mentor. He lives in LA. So he talks about that. Don't be attached to the outcome, but be in a relationship with the outcome. Just do your best, give your best efforts to get to your outcome. But if it doesn't work, try something else. Don't be too attached. Yeah, I like that a lot, having a relationship with the outcome. Great. And my last question to you is, what are you most excited about in 2020 and in upcoming years? Right now, what professionally, that is what I'm most excited about, is continuing to build the Happiness Studies Academy. Uh, so building it into an academic institution. I'm very excited about the certificate program that we're offering. Very excited about the master's degree that we're delivering and ultimately the doctorate degree that we will be offering. So uh, I'm very excited about creating, helping to create this new field of study, happiness studies. That is awesome. And I will put all your social media links, all your you know, happiness study certificate program links in the show notes so that our listeners can get into that and learn more and enroll into the programs. Great, sir. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It has been an amazing, happy, fulfilled conversation with you. Thank you very much, Nishant. Thank you so uh, much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you've got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again